following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. RevivalNow.Church Revival in Woodbridge RevivalNow.Church Revival in Woodbridge RevivalNow.Church Oh. 
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. The Gospel of Jesus has much content that we need to learn. We need to know the facts. The Christian religion, the Christian faith, is not about a series of rituals that we blindly go through, sacrifices that we mindlessly offer. It is, instead, an interactive faith, trust, and love for this man we call Jesus. Now, when we speak about Jesus, we need to understand that he has four primary roles to play or functions that he fills. First, we find Jesus the creator. If you look at Galatians or Colossians, if you look at first um, gospel of John, if you look at Hebrews, the first chapter, they all agree. The gospel of John, Hebrews, Colossians, they all tell us that Jesus is the creator God. So when God spoke the worlds into existence, when he spoke the universe into existence, when he spoke the earth into existence, it was Jesus, the creator, who was speaking. Now, we come forward to the time of Moses. It was Jesus who was speaking from Mount Sinai. He is the lawgiver. He established the old covenant as a model to teach us what he was going to later come and live out before us. So Jesus is first the creator, and then he is the lawgiver. But most of us know Jesus as the redeemer, extending his hand of mercy to us. Today is the day of salvation. And so most of us like to dwell in Jesus the Redeemer. But we must move forward from that and understand from John five twenty two through 27 that Jesus is also the judge. He is the one who will sit without emotion and will carry out the final judgment as he cast all sinners into the fires of hell. The fires are prepared for the devil and his angels, but those who side with wickedness will also be cast into that fire. Matthew 18.8, Matthew 22.13, Matthew 13.47-50, and I could go on and on. The scriptures are abundantly clear that Jesus, the Christ, is also the judge. He has a judicial function that he must carry out from his throne. Now, there's much confusion about this Jesus. And this is not new. When Jesus was here upon the earth, his family had many misunderstandings about him. 
His brothers did not believe he was the Messiah. They did not believe he was the Christ, and they were frankly quite embarrassed by how popular he was becoming because they considered him a false person. And so they speak to Jesus in John, the seventh chapter, and they say, why don't you go up and appear before all of the people in Jerusalem? Show yourself to the world. His brothers did not believe in him. And then if you look at John 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time is not yet present, but your time is always ready. The world is not able to hate you, but it hates me because I testify concerning it that its works are evil. You must go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to the feast because my time has not yet been fulfilled. So they went on to the feast without him, and he remained in Galilee. Now, after the family was gone, he knew it was time to go. And so he went up to the feast, but he did not go openly. He went secretly. Now, the Jews also were widely misunderstanding who Jesus was and what his function was. They were seeking him at the feast, and they were saying, where is that man? There was much grumbling about him among the multitudes. Some were saying, he is not a good man. Others were saying, no, he deceives the multitude. Now, halfway through the feast, Jesus makes his way to the temple. And they were marveling, at how well he knew the scriptures, having never gone to the rabbinical schools. He said, my teaching is not mine. This is John chapter 7, verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but of the one having sent me. If anyone may will to do his will, he will know concerning the teaching, whether it is out from God or I speak from myself. Well, the people were very puzzled by this man, and, and some in the multitude said, you're demon-possessed. No one is seeking to kill you, even though they were. Now, certain men out of Jerusalem were saying, is it not this man whom they're seeking to kill? But look, he's speaking in public, and yet they're not saying anything to him. Perhaps the rulers know that this man really is the Christ. So there is much confusion about who this man is, and the, the Pharisees send officers to arrest him, but the officers, after listening to him, return without arresting him, and they say, we've never, we've never heard a man speak like this. Well, what I want you to see is the utter confusion of who Jesus truly was. Without the facts, they said he cannot be the Messiah because he comes out of Nazareth, and we know the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem of Judea. They had their facts all wrong. Now, these were not dumb people. 
These were people who were just living a normal Jewish life, going about business, but their information was totally incorrect. They did not know that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Oh, we all know that today, but they didn't have radios or televisions or cell phones or computers. It was all word of mouth. They had simply never heard that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Some of you have never heard that Jesus is going to judge. He is the judge. And every man and every woman is going to have to stand before the judgment bar of God when Jesus no longer functions as the Redeemer, but instead he functions as the judge. And every person will be judged according to what they have done. They will not be judged based on accepting Jesus. No, the question is, will Jesus accept you? Now, I'm giving you facts today from Scripture. This may not be what you have been taught or understood, just as the Jewish people had never understood that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They thought he was from Galilee. They thought he was from Nazareth. But he wasn't. You see, it's not what we think we know. It's what the truth is. And you do not arrive at the truth without serious time, energy, and effort to search the scriptures. Some of you believe what you believe, and then you sit for hours in front of the television, and you know a great deal more about the football players or the baseball players and their stats than you even begin to know about Jesus Christ as the judge. It seems to me it would be wise to understand both Jesus as the creator, the lawgiver, the redeemer, and the judge. Because we will be judged on the facts of our life, what we have done and what we have said. We will not be judged on some supposed imputed righteousness where Jesus supposedly gives us his righteousness and covers us with grace. That's not going to happen. I want to share a story with you. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. He's been in conflict with the Jewish people and all of their wrong ideas. Have you ever been puzzled about why they were not expecting Jesus to come as the humble Messiah, Isaiah 63? <clears throat> Have you wondered why they rejected him? He was not what they were expecting. They were expecting a king. Is it possible? Is it possible? that we have misunderstood who Jesus is again and that when he comes in glory and he sits on that throne 
we will be as shocked as were the Jewish people? And if possible, would we join and crucify him if he were possibly to be treated that way? No, he's coming as the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's coming with legions of angels. He will not be harmed this time. He will be the king. But it's possible to totally misunderstand who he is. So let's look at this story. In the eighth chapter of John, Jesus has gone out to the Mount of Olives. He is going to stay there and pray. He's going to sleep on that mountain outdoors all night. But early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. Having sat down, he was teaching them. Now, when he has something very important to say, a teacher sits down and the people stand up. John is a is not a synoptic gospel. It is not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John goes into the underside. It tells us the secret inside part. And John doesn't say anything by accident. He's not trying to tell us a good story. He's telling us in this setup to this eighth chapter that Jesus is going to tell us something very, very important that we need to understand. He's going to give us certain facts that we must grasp. As he is sitting teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman to him having been caught in adultery. You can see her now. Her hair is flying every direction. She's barely covered with a robe. There's terror in her face. Her face still shows the sleepiness. They've jerked her out of somebody's bed. They left the man alone, but they have brought the woman. They stand her in the midst before Jesus, and they say to him, and John says, tempting him, Teacher, this woman was caught committing adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. So what do you say? But they were tempting him that they might have reason to accuse him. Now, please understand, this woman is terrified. She is standing before Jesus. She was caught in adultery. But Jesus is not on the earth now as the judge. He is here as the redeemer. Let me read it for you. John, the third chapter. John, the third chapter. I'll begin with verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave the one and only kind, his son, that everyone continuing to believe in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world that he may judge, not that he may judge the world, but that the world may be saved through him. The one continually believing in him is not judged, but the one not continually believing has been judged already because he has 
not believed with abiding results in the name of the one and only of his kind, the Son of God. Now this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. How is a person judged by God the Father right now in this story? Jesus is not the judge. God the Father is going to hand all judgment over to the Son. But right now we're told that anyone who is walking in evil is already under judgment. Now, please let me say this and say it very clearly to you. It is abundantly clear in all of Scripture that every man and every woman who was born on this earth after Adam is condemned to die for their sin. There is no exception. Every son and daughter of Adam and Eve are condemned to death because they have rebelled, they have taken actions that agree with darkness, with the devil, and they are in rebellion against the Most High God. And the wages of sin, we are told, is death. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look at Romans, the first chapter, the second chapter, the third chapter. It's abundantly clear. All men and all women are under the condemnation of death because of their actions against the Most High God. But God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, even though we deserve condemnation. He did not come to judge us. All men are already condemned to death. So he did not come to execute judgment upon all men. Instead, he came as the Redeemer. He came with his hand outstretched. He came to offer a way of salvation out of the darkness, out of the death cycle. One of the great sadnesses of my heart, the sorrow of my heart, is that I have watched so many men and so many women as they have died. I've done countless funerals for little babies, teenagers, mothers and fathers, grandmas and grandpas. And we may not want to admit it, but there is 100% fatality rate. Everybody dies. That is because of sin. That is because of the rebellion against the Most High God. And now God, in his great mercy, has sent Jesus, the one and only, the one and only, to redeem, to open the way for salvation. And we recognize that Jesus then is coming as the Redeemer. They cannot tempt God. Jesus is God. He is fully God and fully man. They're trying to tempt God. God cannot be tempted. So Jesus bends down and he begins writing with his finger 
in the dust of the ground. This is the same finger that he used as the lawgiver. The scriptures tell us the finger of God wrote the law on the tablets of stone, and Jesus was that lawgiver. Now he bends down and he begins to write again. They're continuing to press him with questions. Come on, Jesus, answer us. What do we do with this woman? Should we, should we stone her to death? Maybe they even had stones in their hand ready to obey him and stone her to death and then report to the Romans that he had commanded the death sentence so that the Romans would then judge him as a murderer. He straightens up and he says to them, the sinless one of you, let him throw the first stone at her. And then he bent down again and once more resumed writing on the ground. Now, what did he write? We don't know for sure what he wrote. But the scriptures tell us now the ones having heard being convicted by conscience were leaving one by one beginning with the older ones so jesus was probably writing the sins the hidden sins maybe women's name that they'd played around with hidden sins he was writing in the dust and they recognized them as their own sin their conscience pierced them by one they turned and walked quickly away. Then Jesus, having stood up straight, and having seen no one but the woman, he said to her, Where are those men, your accusers? Has no one condemned you? So here's this woman, caught in adultery, standing before the king of kings, but he is now in the role of the redeemer, not as the judge. Do you understand? It makes all the difference whether we stand before Jesus as the Redeemer or before Jesus as the Judge. He is not always the Creator. He is not always in the function of the Lawgiver. He is not always in the function of the Redeemer. He is not always in the function as the Judge. These are short periods of time where he fulfills the necessary requirements for that expression of his life. Please get that. Jesus will not always be the Redeemer. He will not always be the one extending his hand in mercy and love. The day will come when he will function as the judge. If you don't get that, you are in grave danger of deception. The hand of Jesus is outstretched in mercy to this precious woman caught in adultery, a sin that brought the death penalty. But he is not condemning her, and when she looked in his face, she did not see a furrowed brow with anger and rage, ready to condemn her to death. 
She looked in his face, and it was a face of mercy and love and compassion because he was functioning in the role of the Redeemer. She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. You must go and stop sinning from now on. In other words, I don't condemn you. My job is not to judge you today. But if you continue sinning, you will one day come before me and I will be the judge and I will execute judgment upon you for your actions, for your sin. Jesus spoke again, saying, I am the light of the world. The one following me may by no means walk in the darkness, but you have the light of life. Now, it's very clear that Jesus was not always going to be there as the light. He was not not always going to be there to have his hand outstretched in mercy and love. And so this woman is commanded, go and stop sinning. Now my question to you, how could Jesus tell this woman you must go and stop sinning from now on? A very clear statement He does not say sin less often. It is stop sinning from now on. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Romans 6, verse 15, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 1 John 2, 1. 1 John 5, 18. Stop sinning. It is a prohibition in the present imperative. Stop the action that you have been in. Don't go there anymore stop now why would Jesus say this if it were impossible for her to stop sinning that would be utterly foolish wouldn't it but it's possible to stop sinning the wild tale that I hear on every street corner in America is that you can't stop sinning. You always have to continue sinning. And then they define sin in this non-biblical way. There is a classical definition of sin, harmatia in the Greek. It means to miss the mark. If I shoot an arrow at a target and I miss the bullseye, that, according to classical Greek, is sin. But that's not the definition in Scripture that's given for sin. Sin in the New Testament is not missing the mark. Sin in the New Testament is taking a voluntary action of rebellion against Jesus. Now, there are those who do not know the scriptures who say that every breath you breathe is sin, that everything that you should have done that you did not do is sin. So it's not possible for you to stop sinning. They don't know the scriptures. The scriptures are very clear. Sin is a voluntary action that a person takes 
in rebellion against the Most High God. Now, do I make mistakes? Absolutely, but mistakes are not sins. I make mistakes because I'm human. I trip and fall. I stumble. But it's not a voluntary action. What man have you seen walking down the street who falls on his face repeatedly just for fun? No, of course not. Who goes out of their house and steps on the ice and intentionally slides on it and results in the snowbank? No, we don't do things like that. Sin is a voluntary action on a person's part because they do not want to obey Jesus. They want to be in charge of their own life. Now, likewise, repentance means, and it is a one-time repentance, according to Scripture, where I totally give myself over to the living God of heaven, and I walk away from darkness, and I don't go back to it. In other words, the biblical understanding of repentance is that I ground my weapons. I stop volunteering myself to be a part of the rebellion against Jesus Christ. I make the decision that I will no longer serve the powers of darkness. Now, Galatians tells us that the works of the flesh are manifestations, that is, our outward actions of adultery, fornication, uncleanness, indecency, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, strife, dissensions, false teachings, envy, murders, drunkenness. The ones practicing such things it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it gives us the fruit of the Spirit. Now, when we go to Colossians, and Colossians is very much like the book of Ephesians, except Ephesians has been edited more and smoothed over. Galatians or Colossians is kind of rough. But we learn there that this whole project is about, that is, the redemption of Jesus Christ functioning as the Redeemer is about the glorious certainty of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I'd like to just read for you a large portion of Scripture. I don't want you to think This is Pastor Ray's interpretation. I want you to hear the actual facts of Scripture, not interpreted by me, but simply given by the Apostle Paul in the writing of the letter to the men and women at Colossae. I'm going to be reading Colossians, the second chapter. I'll begin with verse 6. As therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, you must continue walking in him, having been rooted 
and being built up in him, being firmly established in the faith as you were taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving, you must watch out lest there be anyone leading you astray through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the elemental things of the world and not according to Christ. Let me expand that just a bit. The teaching that you can never stop sinning is a wicked philosophy of men. It is empty deceit, and it will take many to hell. Let me continue. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are in him having been made complete. Oh, wait a minute. You have been made complete. That is, you're no longer walking in darkness. Continuing, who is the head of all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision done not of human origin, but by the stripping off of the body, of the flesh. I mean, I want to read that again. In whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision not of human origin, by the stripping off of the body of flesh. In other words, the carnal man, the wicked man, the man like Adam after the fall, has been stripped away from you if you are in Christ. Having been buried with him in the baptism with whom you were also raised by faith in the working of God, a supernatural work the one having raised him from among the dead, and you, being dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having shown himself gracious to us with reference to all the trespasses, having already done away with the handwriting in the ordinances against us, which used to be contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the midst, after having nailed it to the cross, Having stripped the rulers and authorities of their power, he exposed them in public after having triumphed over them by it, the cross. Now, if Jesus triumphed at the cross over all sin and he removed from us and stripped from us by a divine act of glory, by his blood, if he is stripped from us, then why do we think we have to continue sinning? And what makes us think, what makes us even imagine that we can sit down and feast on the wickedness of the television? What makes us imagine that we can read the books of wickedness that do not draw your heart to Jesus? What makes us think that we have the right to gamble and smoke and drink and drug and go to the hookah bar? What makes us think that we have the right to alter our mind with pot? What makes us think that we have the right to engage in conversation that is not uplifting and not of Jesus, but simply of the wickedness of this world. 
Do you see how insane this is? This is not what Jesus is about. Chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised up with Christ, you must seek the things above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. You must set your mind upon the things above, not upon the things of earth. For you died, and your life has been hid with Christ in God. Wait a minute. Is that saying what I think it's saying? It does not say, does it, that you should set your mind upon the sports of this age. It does not say you should set your mind on the NASCAR of this age. It does not indicate that we have any right to set our mind upon the things of the earth. I was just reading this morning in the prayer closet the early Methodist standard for what Christians should be doing. My background was Methodist. My family's background was Methodist. The old Methodist said, you should not be reading books that do not lead to the glory of Jesus. I guess that takes out the novel, doesn't it? takes out the Rolling Stone magazine, doesn't it? takes out a lot of stuff that will not bring glory to Jesus, but instead will glory the devil, the world, the flesh, the lust of the heart. Now, if Jesus is always going to be the Redeemer and he loves you unconditionally, then I guess you're welcome to go on sinning and that someday you believe you're going to be able to enter into the kingdom above and you'll be able to sin in heaven. Oh, no, pastor. When we die, our sin is taken from us. Oh, wait a minute. Do you mean that your Redeemer is death? I thought your Redeemer was Jesus. So Jesus is going to allow you to continue living on the earth and be raped by the devil. He's going to let the devil have free will in you to cause you to walk in disobedience and sin against Messiah. Is that what you believe? Do you believe that you can deny the judge that he will rule your actions one day and will make a judicial decision concerning your case? Now, you see... This has very sobering, frightful, terrifying implications for you, for your life. But then please consider how you witness to others. Consider your family members who are caught totally in the world. And you think that you can be friends with them and just progressively lead them to get better and better and you never have to confront them with their sin. Because if you confront them with their sin, they might cut you off. Jesus' brothers cut him off. Jesus' brothers cut him off. But then his brother James turned around. His brother Jude turned around. 
they became leaders in the church after Jesus was raised from the dead. It was not a gradual process of friendship evangelism that won James' heart or Jude's heart. It was the crucifixion. It was the resurrection. If you want to win your family to Jesus, you're going to have to be crucified with Christ. And they're going to have to see a resurrected person walking in the newness of life. You're not going to win your family by sharing little bits of tidbits of, of information, tidbits of, of this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And that's not how it works. Conversion is not gradual. It's instant. It's when we see our wickedness. It's when we see clearly how we've been participating in the things of darkness. And we say, I don't want to do that anymore. And we cry out to Jesus, and he strips away the old nature. Listen, for you died, and your life has been hid with Christ in God. When Christ our life may be manifest, then also you will be manifest with him in glory. Accordingly, you did volitionally, or I would use the word voluntarily, put to death your members that are upon the earth. And now he identifies them sexual immorality, uncleanness, lustful desires, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. It does not say, and the exception will be those who say they will accept Jesus but continue to walk in their wickedness. That's not one of the options. See, there's so much confusion about what is the truth and what is the gospel. And so we make up our own little sentimental gospels and say, oh, I'm saved, even though you love to feast on the things of darkness. Oh, my family members, they're going to heaven when they die because Jesus loves them even though they continue to walk in total wickedness, but you don't want to risk confronting them with their wickedness. You don't want to confront, pastor, your church with its wickedness because you want to keep them paying their tithe. You have a budget to meet. Come on. How do you think you'll be received by Jesus? Listen to this. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you also walked at one time when you used to live in those things. That is past tense. You used to walk as a sinner, but now you no longer walk as a sinner. But now you did, and this is verse 8, you did voluntarily put off these things. Listen to what you must voluntarily put away from your heart by prayer and supplication, reading the word. You put away anger. You put away wrath. You put away ill will, evil speaking, slander. What is slander? 
Slander is when you tear somebody down with what you think you know that is a lie. If you go to court and you charge someone with slander, the court is not going to be concerned with whether you think what you said was right or wrong. The court is going to say, what are the facts? I've been slandered. It's cost me dearly. Lies spoken about me, not based in fact. And people have believed these lies. Have I defended myself? No. Of what value is it to try to defend yourself? It's like someone coming and saying, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Well, to even begin to answer that question is to admit that at one time you beat your wife. It's an impossible defense. So some things we don't even try to defend. We just give them to Jesus and we trust Jesus to deal with them according to his will. And we maintain our position of righteousness in Jesus. And so we put away slander. We put away obscene speech out of your mouth. You must not lie to one another, having already put off the old man with its practices. Again, it's a voluntary putting off of the old man. The the Adam nature is totally removed from a real Christian. And having already put on the new man, the one being renewed in true knowledge according to the image of the one having created him, where there is not a Gentile or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision. Verse 12, Therefore you must put on, as chosen ones of God, holy and having been beloved, deep feelings of compassion, kindness, humility, courtesy, patience toward others, bearing with one another, freely favoring each other. We're going to come back tomorrow and we're going to talk about how to do that. Now please, we've spoken about Jesus today as the creator, as the lawgiver, He was the Redeemer with a woman caught in sin, and he is still the Redeemer today. Today is the day of salvation, but please know you will face the judge. If you still have the old sinful nature, you will face the judge and be cast into the fires of hell. Look closely at Matthew 13, 47 through 50. Look at Matthew 22, 13. Look at Matthew 18, 8, and we're going to talk about these tomorrow. Now, just very quickly, this coming Monday night, we will be meeting at the All Saints Anglican Church, and it will be Revival Now. Go to revivalnow.church. If you're hungry for Jesus and you know you need to make a change, then you need to come to revivalnow.church. It will give you the time, 7.30 p.m., and the place, the All Saints Anglican Church, located at 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. Now, we also have a building campaign going on. We have $5,500 out of a budget of $10,000. i am asking, would you consider giving a monthly amount to the Builders Fund that we could move to the FM side of the dial? Or would you consider giving a regular amount every month for Pilgrim's Progress? One man every month sends a check for $1,500.
Another man sends a check for $210. Some give $100 every month. I don't like coming to the end of the month and being short and having to do three or four days of offertory. Would you rescue me from this by beginning to give a regular amount every month that we could pay for the radio? It's a faith operation. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, click on the donate button, and there you can indicate either a regular amount to PayPal that will come to us or a regular amount that you will give via check every month. I need people who will stand with me to bring revival to America. Do you see the desperate need? We must have a change in America. Go to National Prayer Chapel and please do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. I need people in this new year who will stand with me. It's time for Revival Now. So go to revivalnow.church or to nationalprayerchapel.com and we're going to continue this study tomorrow. God bless you, my brother, my sister. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I'll talk to you soon. Oh.